Hi. Good morning, Life Church. <laughs> I am really glad to be here. Um, if you haven't met me, I've met a lot of you, but if we haven't met, my name is Bethany Mazer, and I serve here as the Connections Pastor at Life Church. And I want to address the question that you're all thinking right now. No, the worship team did not plan those outfits. <laughs> That's what unity looks like, guys. I mean, they not. It, it happens like a lot too. It's really cute, isn't it? Well, um, I'm I'm really excited to be here this morning to speak to you in this unity series because unity is something that I am deeply, deeply passionate about, and something that I'm really glad to say that I think Life Church Buffalo does really well, and I'm going to tell you why I think that. So when I was a baby, I was baptized in the Polish National Catholic Church, PNCC, a little different than Roman Catholic, and I spent a lot of time there growing up, but I was truly planted in an Assemblies of God church as a kid, and that's where I was when I decided to follow Jesus and made the decision myself to get baptized. During those years, I had friends that were Pentecostal, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catholic, everything in between, and I thought they were all great. I really did. Then God had me spend the summer of 2006 church hopping around Western New York with my would-be husband. And at the time, I thought it was for he and I to find our new church together. And that's what I was doing. But what God really was doing was further growing my heart for all the different expressions of his church in our community. And what would happen is we would visit a church and we'd be driving home and he'd be like, that was it, right? You were crying, you were laughing. And I'd be like, that wasn't it though. No, it wasn't it. And I was struggling because I saw Christ exalted everywhere and the Holy Spirit kept telling me, nope, not yet. And it was at the end of that summer, right around this time of year, right when I had lost all my steam and frankly grew a little impatient um, maybe a little impatient with God, which I've repented of. Um, but I, I was out, and I got a call probably 12 hours later and was told that there was going to be a new church plant, a new non-denominational church that was going to leave room to disagree on non-essentials, but be united under the gospel and who Jesus was. And you guessed it, that was this church, Life Church Buffalo. Yeah. So I've been here at Life Church Buffalo ever since that fall, 17 years ago, and I've made a lot of friends here within these walls and a lot of friends outside these walls in our community, other Jesus people doing this Jesus-following thing together all over Western New York, and it has been really beautiful to see. They all have different liturgies and different methods and different secondary beliefs, but they are all united under the beautiful gospel And it's a huge reason why I am glad and I'm so grateful that this is where God has planted me for this season. And it's a big reason why my heart bursts when I think of all of the Christians across our community that don't care where you worship on Sunday, but do care who you worship all the time. In fact, actually, I have a couple photos from back in 2006, if anybody wants to see them. (laughs) I'm going to show you from when we were planting Life Church. All right, so here's my family. That's my, he was my fiance at the time, Mike, and my parents, Mike and Debbie. I know a lot of you know them. Some of you know my sister, Rachel. And I might have one more. Might have one more. Ah! Look at how cute they are, guys. I did not warn Kelly that I was going to do that. I did warn Pete. Look at them. Come on. My friends. Oh, it's been such a long time. (laughs) All right, so... 
from my perspective, Life Church really gets this unity thing. But unity and God's desire for us to live in unity extends way beyond church denominations getting along and extends to every single one of our relationships. And that includes even our friendships. But frankly, though, we all know, and I think we would all admit, that we overuse the word friend. Some of us would say we've got hundreds or even thousands of friends. Not only is that totally impossible, but it's actually unwise. Proverbs tells us in 1824 that one with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend that stays closer than a brother. Read that again. Closer than a brother. I love my family. I'm close with my family. Family is needed, and family is beneficial, and family is beautiful, but friends, the people that you choose and the ones that choose you, the ones that fit like a puzzle piece and show that your creator knew you so well, they knew the person that would compliment you, friends are a different kind of wonderful, a different kind of fulfilling. Those relationships, while technically unnecessary maybe for survival, can be some of the most life-giving relationships that we humans experience aside from our relationship with God. In fact, many philosophers and theologians have argued that true friendship is a far greater gift than romantic love. Think about that for a second. So friendship love, philia in the Greek, it's the only love that Jesus experienced in his own humanity. He did not experience eros, which is that love, that romantic love between spouses, And he did not experience storgi, which is the kind of love that parents have for their offspring. But Jesus experienced philia, that brotherly love that he had for his friends and that his friends had for him. Is that not amazing? Of all the relationships that our culture tells us are important, I would argue that they put friendship in a far third place. But it is the only one that Jesus got to experience in his own humanity. Jesus said that the world would know us by our love for each other. He cared about all relationships, and friendships is no exception to that. That's not to say that culture has completely ignored friendships. We see the human heart's desire for friendship reflected in some of the most popular shows and TVs. All the best feel-good things are buddy comedies, right? So this is going to be the interactive part of the morning. So shake off like your morning borings. Pretend you just had a shot of caffeine. And we're gonna, we're, I'm going to throw up some pictures, and I want you to shout out if you know who they are, okay? You guys with me on this one? All right, here we go. Oh, I love Lucy. That's a classic friendship right there. Guys, I'm such a nerd, and I love them, and I'm not going to tell you which one I like more, but it's half and half. Okay. (laughs) Fuzz and Woody. This one is a cool one because it has spanned generations. Like, the Toy Story, just, it it just, it touched a lot of us in this room. SpongeBob and Patrick. Now, this one I didn't watch myself, I'll admit. I have younger cousins who loved this show. Um, But yeah, that's a friendship for the ages there. Oh, guys. There it is. The age of the room is showing. (laughs) Will and Carlton, this generation's odd couple. Oh, come on. Thank you for being a friend. All right, okay. Everybody knows the Golden Girls. Anybody? Yes! Yes! I know this was a deep cut. This is Scrubs. This is one of my favorite shows of all time. Look at how they're looking at each other. That's friendship, guys. Okay, the one everybody in the crowd wants. Uh Uh-huh. I know what the crowd wants. The Buffalo Bromance. 
But there is one friendship that you may have heard of that crosses centuries, it crosses all continents. This is the strongest friendship I've ever seen. Me and dark chocolate. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I had to get my chocolate in there, guys. Um, All right. So chances are you've watched and really enjoyed watching at least some, if not all, of those relationships that we just went through. And the question is then, if we all long so deeply and are drawn so much to these friendships, the stuff that shows and movies are made of, why do so few of us have them? So some 20 years ago, pastor and author Tim Keller, he mapped out what a true biblical friendship looks like using, like all great preachers do, some alliteration. And I'm going to go through some of those today, this morning. We're going to do the four C's, and I've added one of my own, a biblical friendship. If you want to follow along this morning, we're going to be in Proverbs, so you can open your Bible to Proverbs. We're going to be in there a lot, looking for God's wisdom for friendships and how we can be a friend. Because a lot of us don't have friends because we don't know how to be a friend. It takes a friend to be a friend. I'm going to throw a lot at you this morning. I hope you're taking notes. You can take notes in our Life Church Buffalo app too. You just hit sermon notes and you can do that. All right, so our first C of the five C's of friendship today is constancy. Constancy, that's like a funny word. Proverbs 7.17 tells us, a friend loves at all times. Sounds like a simple statement, right? In order for something to be constant, it means it's continuous, so over a long period of time, constant availability, constant commitment, both of those things. It's easy to have a short-lived friendship, And I imagine many, if not all of us, have. Maybe one that started out great and fun, but then kind of got put on the back burner when you hit a little little bit of a conflict, or maybe you just found something more new and exciting. Or sometimes this happens with, like, neighbors or coworkers. It's also easy to have a long-term relationship that you only kind of check in on once or twice a year. Maybe you go home for Thanksgiving and you run into your old high school buddies, or you go on a work conference every year and you see your college friends there and you catch up and have dinner. Those are all really valuable companions to have. They bring a lot of fun and color to our lives. There's nothing wrong with those relationships. They're great. But they don't have the same power as a true friendship does. One that makes us develop the fruit of the Spirit in ourselves, makes us look more like Jesus, and brings us to the edge of ourselves in the process. In order to have constancy, your friend and you as a friend need to be constantly available. You need to be willing to prioritize this person over other things in your life or other things you may want to do, even if it was that you just wanted to sit on the couch all night. Because it's in those mundane moments where you suddenly laugh at the same thing and you weren't expecting it, that friendships are deepened. The philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, I'm a little bit of a dork, but bear with me. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he once wrote about friendship, what is so delicious as a just and firm encounter of two in a thought, in a feeling? Is that not beautiful? Do you not want that? You also need to commit to your relationship, your friendship, in the long run. There's no magic formula to know when a casual companionship shifts to a true friendship, but I can tell you it's not in the short term. It doesn't happen in the short term. And the trick to this and to every single one of these C's in friendship is to have humility when you're approaching 
the relationship. See, the moment you think, huh, I haven't heard from so-and-so in a little bit. You can't let anything other than, I'm going to call so-and-so today, be your next thought. You can't start wondering and getting paranoid and, and going, why the distance? Why hasn't she called me? You, you can't draw some arbitrary line in the sand that I'm not going to call so-and-so until so-and-so calls me. Don't do that. Just call her and say, hey, we haven't talked in a while. Because you will be shocked how often it was actually the Holy Spirit who whispered that thought to you in the first place. And your obedience and your humility will bring joy and life into that relationship. If you'll let me for one second, sidebar, please don't send the dreaded, hey, we should hang out sometime text. Nobody wants that text. (laughs) Nobody wants to receive that text. Put yourself out there for a little bit. Suggest a day. Suggest an activity. If they say no, they say no. If they ghost you, they ghost you. But you've done it. Don't put it on them. Own it. Treat them as more important as yourself, like Philippians teaches us to. All right. Thank you for my little sidebar. (laughs) Now, constancy will look different depending on the stage of life that you're in. When you're in high school or college, you have so much time on your hands. It may not feel like it, but you have way more time. We all remember when we had so much time to hang out with our friends. And I see you guys, like, making plans, like, every night, and it's exhausting to me. But, like, good for you. And that's why a lot of us still kind of have friends from that time in our lives. We had so much time to deeply root those friendships. When you have little kids like I do, it looks different. It's more like bonding at birthday parties when you have a second when someone's not trying to jump in a pool or commiserating over the onslaught of school emails and how difficult potty training is, those kinds of things. And I don't thank God enough I really don't. For the friends of mine who are willing to enter my mess, come into my home and wade through the laundry and just hang out with me there while I'm doing dishes and my girls are running around in the background because those moments are so valuable. And when you're older, it's about those deliberate plans that you make and time accumulated over the years plus an ever-present availability that's going to create that deep and abiding friendship. Whatever stage of life that you're in, you're not going to be able to fight for unity in your friendships without that constancy, that selfless availability and intentional follow-through. If you think you are someone's friend sometimes, you're not. You might be companions, but a friend always loves, and a friend loves always. Okay, our second C of unity in friendship is carefulness. Carefulness. Proverbs 25.20 says, Singing joyful songs to a troubled heart is like taking off clothing on a cold day or pouring vinegar on soda. A careful friend is not ignorant of their friend's needs and proceeds with caution during hard times. A friend has an acute awareness of what's going on in his friend's heart because an emotional connection given voluntarily has been established that requires vulnerability, and you guessed it, humility, to bring in that closeness. A true friend is committed to their friend's life, to their friend's flourishing, to their friend's wellness, because when they are thriving, you are thriving, because you have become vulnerable enough to create that connection so that you are now tied to their happiness and health too. If your friend's going through a difficult time and you know something that would make it worse, you don't let it happen, no matter how convenient it might be for you. Because you never want to be the person who made your friend worse off. 
Proverbs 17, 27 says, The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. You have to have knowledge and understanding of your friend and then proceed carefully to be a good friend. Our third seat of friendship is candor. Both in what you share about yourself and what you share with your friend about him. When a friend is showing candor with you, he is cutting you open to remove shrapnel. There is some dangerous piece of sinful shrapnel in you, be it selfishness or pride or anger or addiction, whatever it is, it's inside you and it's killing you because all sin is killing you. A true friend who's fighting for unity is willing to go in there and cut you open. He's going to point straight to that piece of shrapnel, but he's also going to stay by your side right as it's being painfully removed. And it's going to cause him pain as it's happening too. He's not cutting you open just so you have matching scars because he did the same thing once. He's not cutting you open to teach you a lesson about playing with fireworks or feel really superior to you that he doesn't need this right now. The cutting actually hurts him too. So he minimizes the pain as much as possible, but without sacrificing the end goal of removing that shrapnel. And candor only works in a friendship if it goes both ways. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine that I was recently really, really grateful for. I was having a day, and I was really struggling with some envy. And I don't, I, I'm really hesitant to like label everything a spiritual battle, but this day it felt heavier. It felt different. It was hard. I was really struggling. And so I got in my car, and I was driving somewhere, which is the best time for a mom to make phone calls. And I call her, and she answers right away. So first gold star for constancy. She was there. She answered. I started telling her through tears what I'm dealing with and how embarrassed I am because the person that this was about is actually quite wonderful and generous and amazing and loving. And man, I was struggling with envy. So she proceeded with caution and she took it with ste- in steps. So two gold stars for carefulness. She starts telling me about how she understands what I'm feeling. She actually shared with me about a time that she felt the same way. And then... And this is the most beautiful, friendship-creating, life-giving part of this conversation. Then she says, but you're sinning, and you got to (laughs) stop. I mean, man, am I grateful that she said that. I know that that was uncomfortable for her to say, but she made no excuses or allowances for my sin. She walked in to the thorn bush to pull me out, even though I had walked right in there myself. And she got scraped on the way in and scraped on the way out but I am so grateful for her. That is what candor and friendship looks like. Proverbs 25, 11, and 12 says, a word spoken at the right time is like gold apples in silver settings. A wise correction to a receptive ear is like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. Let your words be at the right time and be wise so that they're received like a gold apple. That's a weird picture, but a gold apple. All right, we've covered constancy, carefulness, and candor. And our fourth C is counsel. For this one, I want to tell you of a story in the Hebrew Bible that rivals Alan Diggs in terms of bromance, Jonathan and David. Now, you can follow this story of the friendship in in 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 20, 
and 23. It was in the email this week. You can click on that link to read it. I'm not going to read this whole story. That's pretty long, but it's really, it's a really great story. You guys really should read it this week. Um, so you've heard of David, uh, King David, but before he's king, and he's just defeated Goliath. Uh, especially if you spent the summer in the Psalms with us, you've definitely heard of David, right? So he meets the king's son right after defeating Goliath, and him and Jonathan, the king's son, they become the best of friends. They have immediate connection. They make a covenant with each other. I mean, like, this covenant, and they had bro hugs, and they're, like, sharing their cloaks. It was a friendship for the ages. King Saul is delighted that David has beat the Philistines for Israel. And so he decides he's going to invite him into his royal household, which is great because now it's going to give David and Jonathan a lot more time to hang out and bond. But before they could even decide who's going to get the top bunk, King David's or King Saul's envy just overtakes him and he starts throwing spears like crazy at David. Like every turn he's trying to murder David, murder David. It was like this attempted murdery vibe all the time. And it was really weird. After a few failed attempts at killing David, King Saul finally gives up and he's like, you know what, I'm going to tell my men and my son Jonathan to go and do it for me. So he instructs his men to go and kill David. Jonathan immediately goes to David and counsels him in 1 Samuel 19. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. This turned out to be great counsel because all Saul needed was a little good counsel himself and he finally cooled down and stopped trying to murder David for a a little bit. Go read the story. It's a great story. Go read it. I can't read the whole thing. (laughs) But a good friend gives good advice even if it could bring them harm. What if Saul had heard what Jonathan said to David? What do you think would have happened to Jonathan? And And a good friend accepts good advice just as willingly. This is not a one-way street like a professional counselor, which has so much value. But this is you both being vulnerable and humble, both accepting godly counsel and both giving godly counsel. Like the story I just told about my friend who counseled me into owning up to the fact that I was sinning, but I've done the exact same thing for her in the past as well. That said, you can only be capable of humble godly counsel by spending time with the Father. You have to read his word. You have to let it transform your heart and your perspective, the way you see life. And then you and your friend can be there to support God's work in each other. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And in verse 5, better an open rebuke than hidden love. Those are powerful words about how we can relate to each other and make each other better in friendship. Okay, our last C of friendship is conflict. Because you don't have a real friendship if it hasn't survived some conflict. It is not called tried and true for nothing. It's a real thing. The Bible gives us lots of resources on how to resolve conflict God's way, and, um, which is really the only right way to resolve conflict is God's way. And it doesn't just apply to relationships. This is going to apply to any relationship where you are fighting for unity, and it's going to be necessary for unity in any relationship that you have. Much of what the Bible says about conflict resolution can fall into five steps. So this is your next list of five things. Are you ready? Step one is that you self-examine 
And really, it should be step zero. I wanted to call it step zero because you shouldn't go anywhere until you have done this. But step one is that you're going to self-examine. So when you're self-examining, you ask yourself a few questions. The first one being, should I even be hurt? You have to, re you have to review your own pre-existing hurts. Were you triggered by something that was maybe objectively harmless? Were you maybe around someone that has a really strong personality, and so they weren't really being intimidating, but you were feeling really insecure that day? Was the person really being irritating, or were you just being irritable that day? We all have those days. Just make sure it wasn't one of yours. Okay, you go through those, and then you ask yourself, where is my heart? Review your own heart in this situation. Did you get caught in the crossfire of your own sinfulness? Proverbs 16.28 says, A contrary person spreads conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. Not just two other friends. A gossip can separate you and your own friend, too. Were you being contrary? Did you set impossibly high expectations of the other person? Were you gossiping? That is not just for the women in the room. Men gossip just as much. It just looks a little different. You have to review what you may have contributed. You have to consider your own part in the conflict before you decide how to move forward. That someone did something worse than you does not excuse your own sin. If you're hearing yourself saying, but he, but she, stop. Ask, but I, what did I do here? And the last question when self-examining, God, what do I not see? In Matthew 7, Jesus admonished his followers, asking, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If you're reading, hearing that, thinking about planks in other people's eyes, you're getting it wrong. The plank is in our own eye. Remove that plank. And you remove it through prayer. Not check that box. Now I can say I did it. I can say I've got a clear heart because I, you know, I spent two minutes in that prayer. True, humble, submitted prayer where you are willing to let the Holy Spirit come in and convict you of what part you may have played. Proverbs 21.2 says... Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Give your heart to the Lord in prayer. Let him weigh it. It's really hard, but it'll be worth it. Okay, once you've finished your self-examination, your next step, step two, is actually choose your next step. After you've spent time in prayer, maybe even fasting, you use the Holy Spirit to decide whether you're going to move on Repent and ask forgiveness or move forward. You move on if during your self-examination you realized you don't need to be offended. Or if you've discovered enough information or God's opened your heart enough to allow you to cover it with empathy, cover it with love. And if so, you're done. I know that might sound a little weird, 
But 1 Peter and Proverbs both tell us that love covers a multitude of sins. Not every bad day or misstep needs to be dragged into court and dragged into some giant conflict resolution thing. You are allowed, you are liberated to forgive and forget. And you can just move on with your life. But the, the trick is, make sure you have actually forgave and actually forgotten. Don't just say you have because that's what it looks like the good Christian thing to do. Actually get your heart to that place if that's what you're going to do. You repent both to God and to the person if you realize during your self-examination that you had some part to play, whether fully or partially, in what happened. And then and only then do you move forward if the conflict still needs to be addressed. All right. So you're moving forward. You've spent some time in prayer. You know that it's the right thing to do. Step three is to be unoffended. I know that might also sound weird, but please stick with me here. At its root, an offended heart, it's full of pride and idolatry. When we set ourselves as the example of what is good and what should be honored, any attack to that results in a negative reaction. It results in resentment and anger and offense. Jesus' brother, James, he wrote, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Did you hear the word offended in there? Did you hear the word offendable? Because I didn't hear it in there. What is the source of fights and wars among you then? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Not God's passions, your passions. So offense should not be the reason that you're addressing a conflict. The world tells you that it's your badge of honor. This has, got, this has given you some worth that you've been offended by something. But God asks you to have a clear heart before you approach this person that you're in conflict with. God asks you to pray for them because praying for them starts to open up your heart for them. We love the power of being angry with someone for some reason. We love feeling like I've got this thing that I deserve to have because I have enough value to be angry and hurt by this person. But your value comes from God. And so when you pray for this person, you start to see them through his eyes. You start to see his heart for them. And then all of a sudden, your tool belt with the anger in it falls off. And you're like, huh. And so when you do this, when you truly pray for this person, when you pray through this conflict, you may find again that you don't need to move forward anymore because your love may have covered it at this point. Okay. Some conflicts still do need to be addressed, though. So if you're no longer offended, your heart has been clear, and you know you need to move forward, step four is to expect a win. Expect a win in this, guys. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things. This is not the same. This is not the same as everything happens for a reason. Look for the reason in it. Yeah, the reason sometimes is envy or pride or love of power. There are bad reasons that things happen. But for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, he's going to use that sin of someone else. He's going to use this situation that you're in for his good, for your good. God is going to use these things. Yes, your conflict 
is not the one thing that God's not going to use. When he said all things, he's not like all things except that one thing that Joey's dealing with or except that one thing that Mike is dealing with. Like that's not what he, all things work together for good for, the, for those who love God. This is another reason why seeking God's wisdom in the midst of a conflict is an absolute must. You have to do it. Okay, so your heart is right. You're ready for the win. Now it is time for step five, where you actually address the conflict. Please notice how far down the list it was, first of all. And you address it with carefulness and candor. This is a big one, church. If you listen to one thing that I say this morning, if your mind focuses for one minute this morning, this is what you need to hear. Because if, this is, if we could figure this out as the church, as the body of believers, if we could figure this out, our unity up and to the left. This is your left. Yeah. Up and to the left. Our unity would go through the roof if we could figure this one thing out, okay? Jesus taught us in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. It's so easy. If we could, just figure it out. Just go to the person. Go and talk to them. Tell them your perspective. Tell them what God walked you through. Tell them what the Holy Spirit did in your heart in steps one through three. Tell them that you were expecting a win. Quote Romans 8.28 to them. The word of God is life-giving. Tell them that you are on the same page as them, but you want to figure it out. I'm not saying that you're wrong for going to a spiritual leader or somebody in your life that's discipling you, maybe your small group or pastor, to help you navigate to this point, especially if you are a newer Christian. But please, please don't go to anyone anyone, just to drum up support, just to feel validated in some way, or worse yet, to have them inform the other party that they should come talk to you because you're hurt. Because all of those things are just veiled gossip. Those are all versions of gossip, guys. You don't know that it can't be solved with a simple one-to-one conversation without just having a really simple one-to-one conversation. And if you are a third party in this, if someone does come to you, your first words as a disciple maker need to be, have you talked to them yet? Go and talk to them. That's what your first word should be as a disciple maker. Once you actually get to this conversation, this one-to-one conversation, use the same carefulness and candor that you would with your best friend regardless of the relationship you have. If the tables were turned, how would you want them to talk to you? With unwavering gentleness and mercy and peace or full of anger and malice and vengeance, right? Approach them with God's heart in it. If you're truly operating with God's heart, you'll want to be careful with your words. You will want to minimize the pain as you're pulling out the shrapnel in their life. And church, you will be shocked at how smoothly this often goes. You don't actually know what is going on in that person's head. You don't know what God's been doing in their heart. We get so worked up dreaming up the worst case scenario how this conversation is gonna go and make that our excuse to not have it, but we should be dreaming up the best case scenario of how this conversation is gonna go and go into it with that expectation. And even the, like, 
the life of God in you walking into the room with this person is going to be recognized by another Christian. We have all had this experience where we're on like a subway platform and you're like, that person's a Christian. That person, like the spirit knows. Use that unity that you already have as your jumping point. If all of this does not resolve the conflict, which in 90 to 95% of cases, it will. It really will. If you're in one of those positions where it has not resolved the conflict yet, this is when you bring in a third party, only if necessary. Jesus continued in Matthew 18. But if they will not listen, okay? If they will not listen, but if. So this is after the one-on-one conversation. Don't gang up on them immediately. You're going to put up their defenses. You're not going to get anywhere. If they will not listen, take one or two other Christians along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. This verse that you hear applied to so much from worship to making lasagna, it was not about like, oh, let's get Jesus in the room with us. This was about unity. Jesus cared so much about us working together for unity that if two of us are working it out, he shows up. He shows up. Read that verse in context, guys. It is amazing what Jesus cares about and how big his heart is for this to happen. But we still live in a fallen world. And we're all at different stages of growth and maturity. And sometimes, even at this point, the conflict is not resolved. And Jesus knew that that could happen. And so he continued, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, no, that does not mean you're going to get like a pre-service announcement to, to tell the whole church about what so-and-so did to you, right? That's not the point. The point is find a shared community of believers that you and the person share, that you have in common. So maybe it's your small group. Maybe it is the leaders at your church. Whatever it is, a shared group of Jesus followers so that you can sort out the conflict in a place where it will feel even-handed, right? Uh, And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, even to that group of people, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. But guess what, guys? We're called to love pagans and tax collectors. Jesus loved pagans and tax collectors, but we are in a different relationship with them. They are not family to us as Christians, but we still love them very well. But I'm telling you guys, this is way rarer than you think. When two people, unified at the deepest level of who they are, both submitted to our King Jesus, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, decide together that they want to resolve a conflict and fight for unity, it goes well. It doesn't end up in treating someone as a pagan. At worst, it exposes a pagan. Expect the win when you go in to this resolution. Jesus ended this teaching with one last thing. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you see what Jesus was saying here? The way that we handle conflict and relationships on this side of heaven has eternal implications. Eternal implications. Please, please let that sink in for a moment and realize how seriously God takes our pursuit of unity, eternally. Pastor Pete hit this point really hard last week. I loved it. 
The enemy wants to divide us for a reason. He has a reason to keep us from being united. Sometimes that division is really obvious and dramatic, like a church split, right? But sometimes it is something so subtle because Jesus had this amazing thing for you cooked up in a friendship and you let a little uncomfortable, I don't want to deal with this conflict, let the friendship die in the vine. And now you don't have this way that God was going to use to make you more like Jesus. So once you realize the gift that you have in a friendship, tend to it. Prioritize it. Be intentional. Because they require humility and intentionality and vulnerability and patience and generosity and more humility, friendships can be hard and they're easy to let them fall away sometimes, but they are beautiful. It is a longing put in you by your creator who made you in his image because he himself exists in a beautiful eternal friendship in the Trinity. And so your desire and your longing to be in a deep abiding friendship comes from your reflection, the reflection of him in you. Friendship is a gift from your father who created the universe, steward it like any other gift that he would give you. I suspect that everyone in the room is wondering at this point, how do I find this friend? Everyone's been let down by a friend. When you really start to consider biblical friendship, at first it sounds really great, and then it quickly becomes really sobering because you realize you're not a great friend all the time. Like, who in this room can say, you've always been constant, and I'm always careful, and I have always resolved conflict the right way? Literally none of us. So where is a good friend to be found if we can't even figure out how to get the ability to be one ourselves? How can you even begin to have that ability? The answer is at the cross. Jesus is your constant, careful counselor who resolved every conflict between you and him when he went to the cross for all of your sin, all of your selfishness, all of your pride. In John 15, he said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. And once Jesus becomes your best friend, your first friend, your true and perfect friend, you require much less from your earthly friendships. You are now liberated to considerably carry a friendship on one side. You are liberated to cover things with love and to approach them with mercy. You are liberated to let them ghost you once in a while. You have such fulfillment in your friendship with Jesus that your other friendships are just to make you more like him. He is the ultimate friend who carried the ultimate conflict when he bore, which he bore no guilt in creating all the way to his death bearing the weight of our sin. The Son of God left his throne and was born precisely for the friendship that you broke, precisely for the friendship, for the, for the conflict that you created. When he brought himself back to life on his own power, he made that power available to you if you choose to lay down your life to Jesus, your Lord and your friend, now and forever. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask a question. Maybe you're sitting here today with a weight on your chest, knowing you've stirred up conflict. Maybe you've abandoned friendships out of fear or selfish pride and need the perfect friendship of Jesus. 
Jesus, our victorious king, he already resolved your conflict with God and mended your broken friendship with your creator when he died for your sins and was resurrected by his own power. And you simply need to accept the forgiveness he fought for and be joyfully carried into unity with him. If that is you today, if you've never made the decision to give your whole life and burdens to Jesus in exchange for the eternal life he's won for you, and you know today that you need to make that decision, would you raise your hand right now? Would you raise your hand in this room because you know that you need the friendship with Jesus that you've never had before? I see that hand. Thank you. There is so much that Jesus has in terms of healing and friendship for us. If you just raise your hand, I want you to say this prayer. Church, will you say this with our friends? (laughs) Dear Jesus, I want to be devoted to you. I know that I've done wrong by living without you. I'm sorry for my sin and I trust that you'll forgive me. I turn from my sinful and selfish ways. I accept your love and grace for me. I ask that you be my Lord and my leader. Show me how great your love is. In your name, amen. Church, can we welcome our newest family members? Yes. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, Pastor Bethany. Can we give it up for her? That was a word. Come on. So, so good. So good. I know I say it all the time, but you're going to hear me say it again because it's so fitting uh, for this message. Information without application will not lead to transformation. So don't let this be a message that you just tuck into the back of your mind and say, well, that was another nice Sunday. Apply this message to your friendships, to your relationships. Next time you have a conflict or an argument with somebody, use the Matthew 18 approach. Go through those steps, and I promise you, listen, if we get this right in the church, there is no stopping what God can do in and through us as we continue to reach our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm excited for what God's going to do in your relationships as you apply this message. But listen, real quick, if you just said yes to Jesus, Scripture says that all of heaven and the angels rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance. Can we rejoice with them right now and welcome those born into God's family? We're excited for you. You're our brother and sister in the Lord now. And if I could ask you to do me a favor, if you just said that prayer and said yes to a friendship with Jesus, in the seat back pocket in front of you is a green card that says, I've decided across the top. Would you grab that card right now and just check the box on the back side that indicates the decision you just made. And on your way out, please hand that to one of our dream team members so that we can just give you a gift. We can celebrate you and welcome you to the family. But more importantly, we wanna give you some things that will help you take some next steps. Because the decision to follow Jesus is just the first step of a journey that will last you the rest of your life. And as a church, we exist to help people know and follow Jesus step 
by step by step. And so we're excited to take some next steps with you. If you're new to Life Church, if this is your first time, welcome. We really hope you enjoyed your experience with us today. If you could also find a card in the seat back pocket in front of you before you leave, the black one that says new here, on your way out, you can hand that to our dream team out at the welcome area. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna give six meals on your behalf to a local food pantry to help feed a family in need. And so if that's you, thanks in advance for helping us be a blessing to our own community. And now as our Dream Team members get into position to serve you with excellence on your way out, if your family here and you came prepared to bring your tithes and your offerings to the Lord, as always, you can do that through the Life Church Buffalo app or by using the envelopes in the seat back pockets in front of you and drop those in the black boxes affixed to the wall uh, on the rear of the auditorium on your way out. And last but not least, before I dismiss you guys, this Saturday we are having Nick Vujicic here of Life Without Limbs. If you have never heard this guy speak, if you've never heard of him or seen him, he has been all over the world, ministered to millions and millions of people, and he's coming to Buffalo for a three-day tour, and Life Church gets to host him for one of those dates. And so the invite cards that you saw on the seats when you walked in are not for you. You're officially invited. You're part of this church family. These are for you to take with you and think about who you're going to give this to this week. Because we're believing for a great harvest of souls. People, Nick has a tremendous ability to communicate the gospel in a way that elicits a response. And people, by the droves, respond to his altar calls. And so, please be thinking and praying about who you're going to invite. Uh, if you'd like to take more of these, there are some available out in the welcome area in the foyer. But with that, you guys, I love you. Have a great week. God bless. And go Bills.